Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Helen, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Christian Gattica, our head of research, and Mark Matthews, our head of research in Asia, about Julius Baer's latest market outlook. Hello, Christian and Mark, and thank you both for joining me today. Hello, Helen. Greetings, Helen. So in the next few minutes, we will focus on our year-end market outlook for 2022, looking at the current market environment, talking about key topics such as the energy crisis, central bank policy and recession concerns. And we'll also talk about our views on both equities and fixed income. So let's get started. Everyone's still talking about inflation and recession concerns, and central banks are still hiking rates. What are your thoughts on the global economy at the moment, Christian? Where do we stand? Well, we stand at the, or in the midst of a, of a major uh, growth slowdown at this stage, and this is uh, due to the fact that some of the uh, stimulus and support measures are kind of running out, and at the same time we see a major tightening of central banks, and this uh, actually poses some risks. Of course, to the economy, uh, the market is very nervous about it. They uh, think, or overall, the sentiment is that they, central banks, might overdo it uh, because they're uh, in full inflation-fighting mode and want to kind of stomp it out before it really kind of takes over for the long run, and that poses some risks. Overall, we think uh, a recession can be avoided uh, in in the sense of something we had 15 years ago in the great financial crisis it's very different the situation but yes we have a major growth slowdown and maybe in some places like europe we even scratch uh, or hit the recession levels and mark anything to add to this yes helen i do eventually we will see signs of inflation slowing and then the market will be more confident in thinking the fed and other central banks won't have to tighten as much as they've been saying they will today but it's probably going to take a couple of months to get those signs of slowing inflation. And in between now and then, with sentiment as fragile as it is, the market could go down more. And there could also be some negative surprises, as Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you see he's been swimming naked. Just as an example of where those negative surprises could come from, well, a lot of the debt in the world is denominated in dollars, and the dollar's gone up a lot. So there's a lot of moving parts for investors, but there's also opportunities too. And look for lows, but stay open-minded is the title of our market outlook for the end of the year. And that's definitely aligned with the points you've both just made. So specifically taking a look at equities first then, where do you think the opportunities are, Christian? And is there anything to be avoided? Well, the opportunities are (laughs) rather broad-based, given, you know, the sell-off we've seen so far. And um, the trouble is just uh, how to time them. Or maybe even kind of just conceding that you can't possibly time them and you have to kind of make a judgment call. Or maybe also have a staggered approach in kind of re-entering the market uh, in in many areas. Uh, But uh, we think it was a what we saw in the first nine months of this year was really like a valuation reset. You know, central banks actually pushed a button and to a large extent the whole um, pandemic crisis trade has evaporated on many levels. And we see that we're basically 
in valuation terms at least, uh, to a large extent, to where we were before. Uh, in the case of, of uh, bond markets, we even ahead of, of the levels there. And that opens some opportunities in bonds in particular. We think um, we've seen the major move there and we see juicy uh, yields there in many places. We wouldn't really stretch it given the cyclical risks in terms of um, credit risk. You know, wouldn't go to the high yield and, and the really risky stuff. But uh, middle of the road, good quality corporate somewhere. Um, at the lower end of investment grade, they are a real opportunity. And then in the equity space, um, yeah, again, timing is everything and uh, hardly possible. And therefore, we suggest to be uh, on the defensive side. But uh, we expect that some of the less cyclical names will actually benefit first whenever we see that uh, most of the rise in yields has uh, run its course. Uh, this should be an opportunity then to go back into what we call the bond proxy so stable, like healthcare stocks and um, consumer staples and the likes. And uh, yeah, if you look at the other side of, of the opportunity set, yeah, the big question, and we expect there will be a major opportunity in the next six months, is really cyclical. So the ones who go the most with the leading indicators, which are still kind of after rolling over now, turn into negative territory in many places. Um, we expect that there will be a major opportunity, but this remains to be seen. This is less uh, directly or maybe in the second or third wave of a recovery we might see into next year. Okay, so you're saying it's too early to go back into cyclicals. Yes. And Mark, what about in Asia and emerging markets? What are your thoughts on where the opportunities are there, particularly with the strength of the US dollar? That must be hurting some countries in emerging markets, right? Actually, Helen, you'd be surprised. Emerging currencies as a group are only down 7% so far this year versus the dollar, and that's a lot less than the yen, the pound, the euro. But what you're saying is true. A lot of emerging markets, both governments and companies, do have dollar debts. So it's become more expensive for them because the dollar has gone up, and so their cost of financing has gone up. In terms of further currency depreciation from here, I'd say the vulnerable ones would be the ones whose interest rates are still low, relatively speaking, countries like Thailand, and then others where they're net importers of commodities, so that would take you to India. Others that have uh, current account deficits, in fact, here in Asia, only Indonesia and Malaysia are still in surplus. The rest are in deficit because of their rising import costs. But I do want to say that equity markets here, there have been a few surprises, some that have held up quite well, all things considered. And in dollars, including dividends, I'd point out that Indonesia is up 4% this year. Uh, Singapore's flat. And those are a lot better returns than the S&P that's down 23% year to date. I think it's because global investors didn't own much of Asia in the years leading up to 2022. If they did, it was concentrated in China. And the domestic investor bases in Asia and a lot of Asian countries are, are bigger now, so they can offset a lot of that global bearishness. Okay, great. So we've covered some regions, sectors and styles, but can we look for a moment at equities on the individual stock level? Um, I'm not asking for specific stock names, but obviously a lot of stocks have really suffered this year. So how can investors try to pick out those that are set to make a good recovery now? Yeah, this is exactly the, uh, the most challenging uh, part of the cycle for many companies when it really um, boils down to managing crisis, also having uh, constraints which are quite unusual um, compared to 
previous uh, phases. And uh, we, we looked at this with our single equity analysts, you know, what they think is the, uh, what are the most important dimensions to kind of separate uh, the wheat from the chaff there when it comes to the, uh, the corporate side. And, and we came with six dimensions where we think uh, they can make all the difference. Um, first of all, number one is uh, be in a leading market position. You know, Jack Welch, the uh, General Electric uh, CEO legend, uh, always said be number one or two or be out. So being the market leader makes uh, kind of the crisis management uh, far, far easier. Um, related to that, uh, but it also related to the structure of the industry is pricing power, number two. So pricing power, how much are you able to pass on increasing or, or spiking input prices? And the third one is growth prospects. This is structural, of course. This goes beyond the cycle. But if you have in a good growth environment for the long run, you have it easier to adapt. And then the question is, how much can you translate it into, into earnings and earnings momentum? You know, how much speed can you get in when you get out of the, of the low in the cycle? This is number four. And then resilience overall, you know, the whole value chains, the whole supply chains, how resilient, how stable, um, how anti-fragile are they? This is the fifth one. And finally, of course, you know, you have to look uh, if everything is priced in. Uh, or not and uh, attractive valuation considering also the growth and profitability features is really of the essence so it's like mark be a market leader um, be good at uh, handing over prices uh, growth prospects have to be okay earnings momentum is all that matters in the rebound and resilience uh, make it uh, more trustworthy and finally at what price do you get it and are there any specific segments that we think or that our analysts think have a good chance of recovering now Yes, in particular, some of the uh, sub-industries uh, which were very much in focus uh, lately are attractive and um, also kind of score well on, on these dimensions. Uh, we identified software companies, um, tech or IT-related stocks that have been hit most during this year. Um, so software number one, then we have uh, online travel agencies, um, kind of uh, something which is related to the pandemic and still has further uh, room. Uh, to rise. Um, life science, uh, when it comes to the healthcare space, we think it's a very attractive area with good prospects, also with regard to these kind of longer term growth prospects in terms of automation uh, and kind of uh, the spreading of, of the whole diagnostics uh, we've seen during uh, the pandemic. Then electrical engineering, more of a cyclical uh, area where we see a lot, of course, uh, which boils down to getting more efficient and uh, which is also uh, supported by uh, the energy crisis we've seen. And finally, uh, from the financials uh, point of view, we think rating agencies are actually quite uh, a good place to be uh, given their business models. And to end with a kind of controversial um, sector or a sub-industry, an industry is uh, automobiles. We think this is uh, uh, one of the areas that has uh, deep value in there. And uh, whenever we see um, a stabilization of the situation, we think this has uh, most room to go and scores also well, at least some or many of, of the large players score well on all the dimensions we just mentioned. Okay, great. Really interesting. Um, now, Christian has already touched on the fixed income space uh, briefly, but let me ask uh, you about it now, Mark. It was a very tough first half of the year. Then things appeared to be looking up, but it was all quite short-lived. So with interest rates rising, what's the situation now for fixed income investors in your view, Mark? Helen, generally, 
we don't think now's the time to be taking big risk in fixed income. The Federal Reserve has been hawkish, as you know, and liquidity is deteriorating. And also, because the Fed's been more hawkish than other central banks, uh, its policy rate is higher than those of most other countries. Even here in Asia, places like China, Taiwan, Australia, Korea, Malaysia, Thailand, the list is quite long, where countries have policy rates that are lower than the Feds. And uh, it's not usually that way. So their currencies are going down versus the dollar. And so their governments and companies, as I said earlier, that have dollar debt, they have to pay more for it. Now their central banks are following the Fed and raising rates, but that's still not stopping most of their currencies from going down. You mentioned it's been a tough first half. Um, if I could turn to the United States, I would just point out it's very rare for American investment grade bonds to fall in value. It's rare enough that it's actually only happened five times in the last 45 years. And the worst was a 3% decline in 1994. Well, this year they're down 11%. So that's unprecedented and it opens up some good value. And we like the lower end of the U.S. investment grade bonds. For example, triple B credits are now yielding a 180 basis points over treasuries. High yield, of course, has a better spread, but it also carries the risk of higher defaults when the economy is slowing down as it is now. Get ready for the day ahead. Moving Markets is a daily market news briefing from Julius Baer's leading experts. You'll hear all about the latest ups and downs across asset classes, the underlying drivers, and our thoughts on where markets are heading. Search for Moving Markets on your favourite podcast player. Now, one topic that we definitely need to tackle is the energy crisis in Europe, although I appreciate that this is a European issue and not a global one. But let's still address it because it is relevant. So there seem to be some pretty broad concerns around Europe facing a shortage of energy this winter. What are your thoughts on this, Christian? Well, we think the uh, the concerns are somewhat overblown. I think, uh, you know, we've seen apocalyptic uh, type of, of media reports uh, this summer. And uh, we think there are, of course, risks and it's nothing to downplay. But we think, you know, a lot has to go exactly the wrong way at the same time uh, to really make this happen. So we were actually, to the contrary, quite uh, surprised by the resilience of the European uh, energy system and the uh, reaction uh, that was possible and, um, you know, if we, if we can look at what needs to go wrong at the same time to really make it a, a very dark and cold winter, then it's uh, about a few things happening at the same time. Um, for instance, you know, renewables, you know, no wind, no sun, an extremely cold winter for a prolonged time. And, and maybe that's the single most important a real shortfall in terms of nuclear power out of France. You know, there's been major concerns about the whole revamp in in the French part uh, with regard to the nuclear power stations. And uh, they were late in the game and uh, it was surprising how long it took. There was also the drought and everything, which makes it even more um, difficult. But they're coming back. They're in the process of coming back. That's what we monitor. So if the system doesn't really fail on all levels, we think actually we should be manageable or the crisis should be manageable this winter. Uh, and uh, this is something which is uh, maybe underestimated uh, by the public and also by politicians. But of course, nobody want to, wants to get caught not being prepared for the most extreme scenario. Yeah. And Mark, what sort of impact do you think the energy crisis is having on the energy transition? 
So it's important to say, firstly, that the energy transition was already underway before the energy crisis started. But the energy crisis is certainly accelerating the transition to renewable energy. What's interesting is that over the last few months, nuclear and fossil fuels have proved to be unreliable, but renewables have actually been the most reliable and also the cheapest energy sources. And as a case in point, in California this summer, temperatures got as high as 47 degrees, and I'm not talking about out in the desert. I'm talking about the capital, Sacramento. So air conditioning put a tremendous strain on the grid, but still California had no blackouts because the batteries that store the electricity from wind and solar kicked in. If anything, what happened in California this summer proves that solar and wind are reliable. And from an investment perspective then, what can investors do to participate in this energy transition theme? Well, within the energy transition theme, I'd say really there's two themes that we have a constructive rating on. The first is clean energy and the second is future mobility. So clean energy has a number of structural tailwinds, including the competitive cost of solar and wind uh, that I just mentioned. And this is now a mature market, so government intervention is no longer needed. What does help the theme, though, is the fact that we have all these net zero goals pledged by many governments around the world. The cyclical aspect of the story has also improved because inflationary pressure and supply bottlenecks are easing and valuations have come down and are at much more reasonable levels. So we think this is something that will happen regardless of whether people believe in the story or not. And I'll give you a little example to illustrate that. Most people in Texas do not like renewable energy. That's a fact. In fact, the government there recently passed a law banning municipalities from doing business with banks that have policies against fossil fuels because they want to protect the businesses that operate in the fossil fuel sector. But of all the states in the United States, can you guess which one produces the most renewable energy? Well, it's Texas. They produced 34 million megawatt hours last year. That's almost twice as much as California. And the reason isn't because Texans want to save the world. It's because solar and wind energy are far more economical than oil. And Texas has a lot of flat, empty land and a lot of sunshine. And Helen, if I could just say quickly on the other subset of the energy transition that we are constructive on, future mobility. The shift from gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles to electric vehicles is definitely one that's well underway. And government incentives to switch over to electric cars are a factor supporting it. But the really big driver is the increased offering of electric cars from the automakers themselves. There's now a mid-market offering. Until last year, that didn't really exist. And there's also continued advancements in technology that mean car makers can continually improve their products, like offering cars with greater ranges, for example. And how quickly do we think this transition to electric vehicles is going to happen? Well, right now, 15% of new cars sold in the world are electric vehicles. And I might add China is the leader in this space. For them, it's 30% of all new cars sold. I can tell you within the next 10 years, we think that ratio globally will go up to 80%. Okay, so the energy transition is definitely an interesting topic then. But as we've said, the energy crisis is really just a focus in Europe. So for investors thinking globally, I guess it's also about the state of the US economy and what's going on in China and anything else, Christian? What do you think of the key issues and the key concerns of investors at the moment? 
Yeah, Helen, I mean, where to start? Uh, you know, given the panic around, uh, at least at the end of September 2022 or, uh, or so, I mean, it's it's hard, to, you know, which which part actually hurts most or where the fears are most concentrated. I think there's, of course, a geopolitical context, uh, which always kind of has uh, kind of a background pressure on, on markets and, and the fear of, of further spikes. Um, when it comes to, uh, of course, uh, the war in Ukraine, but also the uh, the bigger picture between uh, the US and China, and with all the all the different type of of mixes in between. So I think that's that's one of the complexes which makes investors uh, most nervous. Then, of course, you know it's the it's the economy, um, the economy overall, uh, very faceted around the world. I mean, we talked about Europe. That's pretty clear there. It's about the energy crisis. In the U.S., it's more about the overheating and how much uh, damage is, is done by uh, the central bank stomping off this uh, inflation spike. And on at the other side um, of the spectrum is uh, China that has actually already been in, in a what we call a growth recession, meaning below average growth for quite an extended time. And where the question is, you know, how will it get out of there? Will it get out of there at all? And uh, what are the long-term implications? I think, you know, that this is more the, the economics. And then there's, of course, infrastructure concerns and also the usual concerns whenever you withdraw liquidity from the system. Do you face any um, type of unexpected uh, things uh, that happen because the market isn't really properly supplied with, with liquidity? So market breakdowns, crashes, flash crashes, what have you. I think these are the three things, you know, talking about uh, geopolitics, about the economic side, but also market structure overall. Okay. And what about the upcoming midterm elections in the US and also China's National People's Congress meeting in mid-October? What sort of impact do you think these events might have on markets, Mark? At the beginning of the year, it looked like the Republicans were going to win the House and maybe even the Senate, too. The latest polls show voters are split down the middle. Uh, political analysts still think the Republicans have a chance of winning one of them. Stocks historically perform better under a divided Congress. I don't really know why, but a cynic would say it's because when Congress is divided, it's harder for politicians to raise taxes or pass policies that create a lot of paperwork and red tape for companies. As for China, there is some conjecture that once the party Congress is out of the way, policies are going to get softer, in particular the zero COVID policy. And that would be great. I know some very intelligent people who think this way, and, and frankly, they're far more expert on Chinese politics than I am. Personally, though, I just can't see the logic. And how many times have we been told, oh, wait for the Central Committee plenum, the Politburo Standing Committee meeting, the Economic Affairs meeting, the Beidaiha summit? None of them resulted in any material policy change. And I think it's actually possible policies could get even tougher after the party congress, particularly in foreign affairs. Okay, so you don't see anything changing in China then in the near future anyway. And overall then, if I were to try to summarize in a sentence or two, we see definitely challenging times ahead, but we would stay invested and look for opportunities in defensive sectors like healthcare, in high dividend stocks, and also in specific profitable growth stocks. Would you agree with that, Christian? Yes, absolutely. And um, I mean, I would simply like to, to stretch uh, the importance of, of patience and also um, having having some guts to go into these markets and stay in, invested in these markets. I think it takes a lot from investors, but I think it will be rewarded if we look back uh, 12 or 18 months from here. 
Okay, thank you. And Mark, do you have anything to add? Helen, there's no doubt this has been a bad year and we're unlikely to recoup enough losses to close up on the year. And in hindsight, we should have paid more attention to the Fed's toughening stance back at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. But I would say that they won't be this hawkish forever. And the market is going to go down on average about once every four years. Longer term, though, it pays to be invested in stocks because the S&P has returned on average 9% per year since 1927. Great. Thank you very much, both of you, for the really interesting conversation and for sharing your thoughts on our year-end market outlook with us today. Thanks for having us, Helen. Yes, thank you, Helen. And with that, we conclude this edition of the Beyond Markets podcast. Thanks again to Christian and Mark for taking the time to speak to me today. And thank you all for tuning in. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this conversation and that you will join us again soon. Bye for now. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbear.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.